Hello, welcome to T4C Truth for the Church. Uh, I'm your host, David Porter, and I'm excited to be with you guys for yet another episode. Um, I think uh, this is going to be a good one. It's been a while since I've been able to uh, really take the time to do a podcast, but I'm glad to be back. And I think the topic is going to be a really good one. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the gender war. Um, it's my belief, and I believe if we're paying attention to what's going on in our culture right now, there is indeed a gender war uh, going on. There's a war between men and women, and though it might not be physical, it certainly is a, a divisive topic within the church. And the truth is, sometimes when we talk to our leaders, we can't really get a straight answer, or we seem to be getting uh, a multiplicity of answers, um, and we're all divided around the subject. And we need to have a uh, conversation about it. But gender war is also about gender roles. Um, And so if we're honest, a lot of this has to do uh, with what we believe the scripture has to say about where a man's place is or where a woman's place is or what responsibilities God delegates to men and what responsibilities God delegates to women, uh, whether that's at work or home, whether that's in the church or society. And the truth be told, we all kind of have our own backgrounds that we're steeped in. Uh, we all have our own you know, experiences, uh, whether positive or negative, and they all inform our realities. But that's the beautiful thing about Scripture. Scripture levels the playing field. The Bible teaches us in the book of Amos that the word of God is a plumb line. It is a leveler. And so it levels out uh, the rich, the poor, black, white. It doesn't matter who you are. The scripture puts us all on an equal playing field. And part of the problem that we're having is just that we don't want to acknowledge the authority of scripture when it comes to certain sensitive topics. And I think that this gender war is one of them. Um, so without further ado, you know how you know how we do it here. Uh, we're going to go to the scriptures and we're going to start to see uh, what God's word actually has to say to kind of address this tension that seems to exist between men and women in society uh, and between, you know, the church and the world at large. I'm actually going to start in a different place than I normally would. I'm going to start in First Corinthians chapter 11 and I'm going to begin at verse number three. Uh, Paul Paul writes here and he says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. I think that's very interesting because this scripture is often used um, alongside a number of other scriptures to support God's uh, established role of men in leadership. And though I agree with that, and I think we'll go there in a few places in scripture um, just to show where the word of God says that, I think it's important to start the conversation around the reality that God is modeling what he wants us to follow. Jesus Christ is modeling what he wants us to follow. And so we need to understand, first and foremost, that when we're talking about gender roles and whose place is this and whose place is that, who gets to do this and that. That's really the wrong mentality. Um, And what we really need to do is we need to take a step back and say, what does God have to say? What does God show us? 
So it's interesting because it shows us that Christ, the head of Christ, is the Father, is God, is Yah. And so we know that there is no problem whatsoever in the dynamic that exists between the relationship between Christ and his Father. There also is no sin, which lets us know that right off the bat, what we can't ignore is the reality that we are all fallen, sinful human beings, and we will not get this perfect. As much as we try, we will mess up. And it is my belief, personally, um, I believe that the scripture teaches us plainly that it was Adam's fault in the Garden of Eden and not Eve's, um, or not the woman's. I, I mess around and say Eve a lot, but Adam didn't call her Eve until after the curses had already been dealt out. He originally called her woman or Isha. But in this scripture here, it's important for, for us in the New Testament believers, you know, under the new covenant to recognize that uh, this headship model is modeled by Christ. So if Jesus can submit to this model, then if we're having a problem submitting to the model, then we might not be looking at Christ but we might be looking at the problems that men have. We might be looking at the problems of the issues that women have, but we're not looking at Christ. So the Bible teaches us first that, that the head of every man is Christ. And I grew up hearing about headship a lot, seeing it a lot. My family's very patriarchal, but I did not grow up hearing that the man must be submitted to God. I heard much more often than not, that the woman needed to be submitted to the man, the woman needs to submit to the man. And, you know, Ephesians 5 was always the calling card for that. But I think this scripture really draws out the importance of really the headship model starts with men walking humbly in loving obedience and submission to Yah, to, to God, to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ modeled this for us in his obedience to the Father. And in John 15, Jesus actually talks about this when he says, I want you to continue to abide in my love. Let me go there really quick, because I think that's an important scripture to pull out. Jesus is not doing he's not commanding us to do something that he himself didn't do. And so oftentimes, uh, men, we can kind of get so focused on they're supposed to be doing this and, you know, who's supposed to be doing that. And the reality is God has given us a responsibility to submit to his will. And to submit to his word and to strive to obey him. And uh, let me read this. Verse number nine of John 15. It says, as the father have loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he goes on and adds, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now, I think this is important because Jesus takes 12 men to be his disciples. And though there were many supporters, we know that there are certain scriptures uh, such as Luke 10, where, you know, there are over 70 disciples mentioned. But we know that Jesus's circle, his main, the ones that he called out, commissioned uh, and spent the three years of ministry with were 12 men. Uh, the, Peter, uh, not excuse me, not Peter, but Paul also follows this model that Christ set when he is teaching Timothy. And he says, I want you to commit these things 
to faithful men who will teach others also. So God has indeed called men to leadership. But it's very interesting here that we see that in the New Testament, this model for leadership, God, uh, excuse me, Christ is telling them to do something that he himself has done. He's saying, hey, the first rule of leadership isn't telling people where they ought to be. The first rule of leadership is making sure that you are abiding in my commandments. And I want you to abide in the commandments of Yah, my father, just like I did. And I think that's really important because that's not stressed enough. Um, And I'm testifying from my own experience that I didn't grow up hearing that. When you started to talk about gender roles, nobody talked about, and to my to my knowledge, the men needed to be submitted to Christ. The men needed to be abiding in the love of God, and that's the that's the starting place. Now, what happens if that isn't the starting place is we have uh, men who abuse their power because they think they're in power. And so, what we have dealt with, and what we're dealing with right now in the church. And in in Christian homes is we're seeing a gross abuse of power. But that's because there are men in power who believe that God put them in power rather than God is simply trying to use them and that they themselves need to be in line. So I think it definitely changes how how, uh, men will operate in leadership when they're under the acknowledgement that, hey, I have to be obedient to the commandments of the Lord in order to abide in his love. And that's what it looks like to abide in the love of God. And once I'm doing that, that is what qualifies me to be a good leader. Not because I have people under me, but what makes me a good leader is that I'm under Christ. And I think that can't be stressed enough. So I think it was important to start the conversation there because we know that there's a lot of tension in a lot of these things that uh, frankly, I don't believe are that controversial, simply controversial because the church hasn't really dealt with it. And now we need to. So that would be the first thing is that, you know, male leadership is certainly something that Jesus Christ believed in. It's something that we see um, te- taught through the apostles. And we see that Jesus is asking them to model uh, to model what he did, which is submit to the father. That means men should be praying. That means men should be worshiping. Men should be submitted to the leadership of the church. And if they're not doing those things, then they're not fit for leadership in any capacity. All right, let's go now to Genesis 1. Uh, I think this is important because, excuse me, Genesis 2. Um, because Genesis 2 really gives us the uh, the formation for how God sees leadership. Um, when we want to talk about leadership and gender roles in the church, um, Paul in 1 Timothy 2, you know, he makes this, this statement. He says, I, I don't allow for a woman to teach, not preach. It's very important. He said, I don't allow for a woman to teach nor have authority, usurp the authority over the man. And then he cites that, well, Adam was created first. Man was created first, then woman. So we're going to Genesis 2 um, to look at that. Um, and we'll we'll see that here. The Bible says this in uh, chapter 2 of Genesis and verse number 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So God made Adam a priest. Um, These two words here, dress and keep, are the same words that are used in Leviticus for the priestly functions. Um, So really, the the garden of Eden uh, was a sanctuary and Adam was the priest and he was in charge of everything uh, to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, 
of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So God laid out this instruction for Adam, and Adam was solely responsible for the well-being, the care of that sanctuary, of the Garden of Eden. It was Adam's responsibility. God and his sovereign will had a plan to produce image bearers, and Adam needed a helpmeet. Uh, God later goes on the next verse and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Uh, this verse is often mis misused. Um, many people have tried to say that there was something that was wrong with Adam, which was why God needed to bring about his helpmeet woman. That's not true. Uh, it's simply that it was not good because it was not God's plan. It was not God's will for man to be by himself. It was God's will for man to be with woman and for them to create image bearers. Not that there was something lacking in Adam. Uh, if something was to be lacking in Adam, that would reflect in God because Adam was made in the image of glory of God and Adam was not missing anything. God said it was very good when he created him. There was nothing wrong with Adam. I think that's really important to be stated. Uh, so anyway, you have man here that's been created first. God has done the conversation with Adam, given him the commandments. Uh, later on in the chapter, we see where you know Adam has been given the responsibility to name everything in that. Of course, we understand the authority behind that. Adam has been given authority over Eden. He's been commissioned by God to, to keep the garden. And when we go to Genesis 3, you know, after Adam gets presented his wife, God puts him in, in charge over everything. And of course, we know the story about the serpent, uh, you know, tricking Eve and, and getting her to eat this fruit. But this is what the scripture says in verse number six. When the woman saw, this is Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Adam had been given strict instructions by God, and Adam was there while a woman had the conversation with the serpent. And somehow Adam lost sight of what God had told him to do and started to listen to what the woman had told him to do. Now, let's scroll down to verse number, let's see, let's go to verse number nine. Verse number nine, it says, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? God never called out the woman. God called out Adam because Adam was the one that was responsible. Adam was the one he made covenant with. Adam was the one uh, that he put in charge. Adam was the one who was supposed to be the protector and the leader. And so everything, everything circled around men. And anything, and I've learned this, uh, Satan understands in our day and age that as long as men uh, continue to be dormant, continue to be uh, spiritually apathetic, uh, God will not be able to work to his fullest capacity within the framework of the church and the family. Because this is God's original design. This is why Genesis is so important. It means the beginning. It's showing us God's intention for why we were created. 
God's intention was for men to be in leadership, for men to be the priest in their home, for men. And you have to understand that this is institution. Marriage is an institution. It's the first and greatest institution of our society. All other institutions, things like government, all those institutions come after this institution. Uh, and so God has called men to be uh, the head, to be the ones accountable for all that goes right and all that goes wrong. So when everything went right, God was right there with Adam. But when everything went wrong, God came right back to Adam and said, "What? where are you? You know, and they had this conversation. And then later on, when you read about the curses, this is what the Lord God said unto Adam. He said, because in verse 17, because thou has hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So then he goes on, pronounces the death that he that he told him was going to happen. And so I don't think this can be understated um, because this is the model that we need to understand. First, we talked about First uh, Corinthians 11 and recognizing that uh, leadership, headship starts with men being submitted to Christ. And now we see that same thing that Paul was saying in First Corinthians 11 all the way back in Genesis. We see it right here in Genesis that when Adam was submitted and listening to God, that everything was fine. But when Adam stopped listening to God, uh, he ended up listening to his wife instead of listening to God. And he should have been the one that never allowed the conversation to happen between the serpent in the first place. And so one of the sins of Adam is simply a sin of negligence. James, I believe it's James 4, 17. I'm not sure if that's exactly right. I know it's in chapter four. It says, he who knows what to do and chooses not to do it, it's sin. So Adam knew what to do. He knew what God commanded him to do, and that sin was negligence. He neglected his role. And can I tell you something? When I look at the society that we're in right now, I see men all and every everywhere, government, church, home, school. I see it everywhere. It's simply men who are neglecting their responsibilities. They're neglecting their responsibilities to be faithful to their wives, to love their wives, responsibilities to be faithful to the ministry and to, to sound teaching and doctrine, to be fidelity. I mean, fidelity is a, is a huge thing. You know, we're seeing men just stop and walk away from the responsibilities and the charge that God has given them. And now they are, by their negligence, training up another generation of men who are looking to their absentee fathers, uh, their absent fathers, and saying, oh, okay, well, I guess this is what it looks like to be a man. And so now you don't have men in homes or the men that are in homes aren't really in the homes. They're not really present. And people are being raised by TV. People are being raised by the media and music and social media. And they do not have uh, what God commanded men to do in their lives. And so, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine about this. I said, could you imagine what the world would look like in 40 years? I mean, it's bad enough as it is. You know, 40 years ago, did we ever think we would have the problems in society that we're having right now? Um, you know, 40 more years, who knows wh wh what it would look like? But I think this is something that's important uh, to talk about. And frankly, the church doesn't talk about it enough. Now, we've talked about men and how they need to be 
Uh, they need to be submitted to God. We've also talked about in Genesis here how God deals with men. Um, we, we, we see what Jesus did and his apostolic, and we see the apostolic ministry. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later, but we see here God's original plan and design. This is really important. The issue was with Adam. It was not with the woman. It, it had nothing to do with her. Yes, she got cursed. Absolutely. She, she, she got punished for what she did, but Adam was the one that was responsible. Now let's go to Romans chapter five. Uh, because Romans chapter five ties this in, uh, and we really understand the weight of what Adam did. Um, even though Paul mentions that Eve was the first to transgress, it's really important to understand that Adam's transgression is distinct from Eve's transgression. Uh, Eve's sin was different than Adam's sin because Adam had a face-to-face relationship with the Lord and God himself told him those commandments and Adam was the one that was responsible. So so let's let's look at this because uh Romans 5 really really brings this to light and uh we don't talk about it enough. All right, let's look at verse number let's go to verse number 11. It says and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Whereas by one man, y'all caught that, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. In other words, it was not Eve's sin that passed into the world. It, It was not Eve's sin, but it was Adam's sin. And if you go back and look at the account of Genesis, the Bible is clear. She ate. She ate the fruit and then she gave it to Adam and Adam ate the fruit. And once Adam ate the fruit, the Bible says, you know, then the eye, both of their eyes were open and they understood everything changed when Adam ate the fruit. OK. All right. Verse number 13, it says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after a similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a, who, listen, who is the figure of him that was to come. This is why uh, Satan is so keen on distorting the Genesis account, because to properly understand who Adam is, is to properly be able to understand the second Adam, which is Christ. And so there's, there's these tiny little things that, that aren't really tiny doctrinally, but uh, if we're not careful, we can we can take those into our theology and it can really harm us down the road. Oh, well, no, it was Adam and Eve sin. It wasn't Adam sin. No, 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 no. It, it was just Adam sin. Eve did sin, but, but, but the, but the covenant was made between Adam and all mankind. This all happened through Adam. Okay. All right. Verse number 15, but not as the offense. So also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So I think that's it goes on and it says pretty much the same thing 
um, you know, verse 17, for by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to get here is God takes this very seriously. So it's important that we approach the context of, of uh, when we're talking about gender roles, right? We, we, we often jump into should women work or not? Or at least that's where I've, I've always heard the conversation. Should women be pastors or preach or not? You know, and that's where the con- the conversation starts. When reality, these things are, should be the overarching guiding principles of where we start. And the honest truth is if we start here, those other questions are kind of already answered. They really are. They kind of, they kind of answer themselves. Right. And so so instead of us um, nitpicking on two or three verses and fighting over whether Deborah was a prophetess, I mean, what Deborah was a judge and, you know, you had, the, you know, Shulamite prophetess or not, or Anna was a prophetess. That, well, well, we contextualize the entire framework of what this looks like so that when we do see anomalies or we do see uh, the unclear would be a better word, we understand, well, it can't be an endorsement, right? Because we we see what God's model is for headship in Genesis. Um, and you know, Deborah is a Deborah is a great example. I think that's Judges four. Um, when we study the history of of how God used male leadership, you have you know coming up to the promised land, you have uh, Moses, and then you get Joshua, right? And then Joshua passes away, and then you have Caleb, uh, and then you have um, you know Othniel. And then you have uh, Ehud, you know, or Ehud, you know, and then and so so you go through all of these lineages of, you know, you have God calls up this man, 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 and then you get to the book of Judges with Deborah, and you have God calls this woman, right? Which is kind of it's an anomaly in the text, but it's interesting because then it's contrasted by Barak, who is such a spineless leader. Uh, he, and so it's really showing that the spiritual destitute, right? That, that the nature of Israel is so pitiful that there are no men God can even call. That that's really the point. Um, that won't be the point that many of different theological frameworks draw out. Um, but that's the, the, in the context of it. That's really what it's saying. Uh, even things like Josiah, um, when he when he comes into rule, and you know. There, there's so much pagan worship. Uh, his daddy was murdered. I think it was 22. Asa or Asa. Well, it wasn't Asa, but um, I can't remember the name of his dad right off the top of my head. But, you know, you had Manasseh and then his son and then Josiah. And so Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings in the history of, of Israel. And you have this history of, of deity worship and, you know, Baal worship. And, you know, basically he set up these satanic shrines and temples inside God's own house. And the people are so far away from the word of God that they didn't even have the word of, they, they, they stored it away somewhere and they didn't know where it was. They didn't even know where the book of Deuteronomy was. They didn't know where it was. And so when Josiah started reforming the kingdom and started to bring back the word of God, uh, I can't remember the name of the high priest, but the high priest found the book and brought it to the scribe and the scribe read it for Josiah. When Josiah read it, the Bible says he wept. 
He couldn't believe he tore his clothes. He couldn't believe it. And then he says, we got to go get find somebody to inquire in the school of prophets. Somebody's got to go inquire uh, for the Lord for us. We got to go. And guess what? There is a woman prophetess. Right. And so it's it's a common theme, even when we look in the scriptures, that it's, it's commonplace that when Israel, even in the Old Testament, is spiritually destitute, there are no men that are righteous to be found. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah with lots of another perfect example where where Abraham's bargaining God down, you know, and there's nobody righteous there. You know, it's only for Abraham's sake that Lot is saved. And anyway, it's it's I think that's important contextually to point out, um, because more often than not, when we're talking about this, you know, the truth is we have our own experiences. We have our own expectations and we have to learn how to let that let that go and say, OK, Lord, what are you really trying to say here? I mean, the honest truth is men have just sucked at this. We have done a horrible job. We have abused our power and we've done a horrible job. Um, in many ways, in leadership. And, uh, and, and it also needs to be said uh, that this has nothing to do with the inherent betterness of men than women, which is the unfortunate, sad reality of what many men think, even when they don't say it. They might not say it, but they really do think that way. They really do think, oh, I'm better. Oh, we're smarter. Oh, we're this. Oh, we're that. And the women aren't. And I've actually had a few conversations with pastors uh, who once had a position on women in ministry um, and they being excluded from the ministry and they changed their minds. And part of why they changed their minds was they actually heard women minister and they said, oh, my goodness, I was blown away. I could not believe. Uh, oh, man, you should have seen this. You should have heard. Oh, I felt the power of God and I, I felt the spirit moving and this and this and that. But the reality is, well, it has nothing to do with ability. It just has to do with God's order. And so for me personally, I found that more often than not, a lot of men who turn, turn because how they felt. And it wasn't really about God's word in the first place. It was just they were very misogynist and sexist in their thoughts towards women, that the spirit couldn't move the same way that it could with a woman. And uh, of course, that gets completely outside of the realm of scripture, right? That that goes into what you and I think and, you know, feel and experience. And if that's the case, I feel, you know, that that Jesus, I just saw Jesus in, a, in the flesh yesterday. You know, well, it doesn't matter. The word of God tells me no man has seen God at any time. So we need to make sure that we we stick to, to the, the boundaries and the limits that scripture gives us. And scripture is really clear on this. All right, let's talk about the home um, because it needs to be stated how God expects men and women to to re, to react in the home, and I think that this gender war is 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 pretty big. Let's go to Ephesians five. I know I mentioned it earlier. Um, the Bible says this, um, verse number twenty one: submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Um, that's more of a general. Um, that's more of a general instruction to the church in Ephesus. Um, for everyone to kind of be submitting themselves to one another, much like Philip Philippians uh, chapter two, where it says, I want you to esteem each other as better than themselves. Or uh, in Romans chapter 12, where he's saying, if anybody thinks he's anything, he's really nothing. So the context really is about honoring the other person, 
It's really about honoring the other person. This is the spirit of Christ is when we approach people with humility and honor and we're trying to dignify that person rather than subjugate that person or make ourselves over that person. And that's really what uh, how God wants uh, men to lead. Uh, verse 22 uh, says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So God has not called women to submit to every man. Uh, it's not called them to submit to their boyfriends or fiancés. It's, it's called for them to submit to their husbands. Um, now I know that's kind of tricky. Fiance is husband to be, but it's still not. It's not husband in our culture. Uh, in the biblical culture, it was. It was a stage in marriage, and I guess you could argue that it is here, but it still needs to be stated. Um, so that I think that goes without saying. The word submit is important here because it simply means obey. Um, and submit doesn't doesn't nearly imply uh, the amount of freedom of choice that we like. Uh, the same way the Bible, if the Bible says submit ourselves to the word of God, well, we understand exactly what that means. We don't need to dress it up with a lot of colorful language. Uh, we don't need to try to soften the implications. We just need to receive it. Um, and so if we don't want to submit to the scripture, well, what we're really saying is we, we need to come under agreement. We need to come underneath the authority of the scriptures and get in line. That's that's what it's really trying to tell us. Get in line with the word of God. Um, and so we need to uh, we need to take this scripture as it says. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And that key phrase, as unto the Lord, is important because if that husband is asking you to do something that's against the word of God, then you don't submit to that. Because that he's out of he out of he's out of his leadership that we talked about before because he's not submitting to the word of God, and so if he's asking you to do something, uh, you know that is not according to the word of God. You don't have to submit to that. But he goes on verse twenty three: for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, and he is the savior of the body. So we can't get any clearer than that. The husband is the head of the wife. Christ is the head of the church. Verse number 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So this also gets into church leadership a little bit because it shows us the pattern. Once again, that was established all the way back in Genesis that the husband is the head and Christ is the head of the church. And so when we're talking about church leadership, we're going to move into this. But this is why uh, Paul holds the position that he holds. And it's not really Paul. It's the Holy Spirit that's just speaking through Paul. If we say, well, that's just Paul. Well, then we can say that about any point of any scripture. Well, he wrote it to the people at Ephesus. Well, well, you know, Jesus was talking to the people at Galilee when he said he was the son of God. So I guess it's not applicable to us. Right. We have to we have to apply all of it. All right. Uh, so I think that's important to point out. Verse number 25 uh, says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So this sacrificial love, the way that Jesus loves us is the way that men are supposed to love their wives. And so it's amazing because if you have um, a husband and a wife who are both striving to do what the word of God has taught them to do, it's going to be a beautiful thing. The problem is we're inherently selfish because of our sin. And like I said, that whole culture of honoring the other person, sacrificing, being humble for that other person is very challenging, which is why marriage is a sanctifying act. 
But part of the gender roles and, and gender wars that we have when we think about things like should you work or not work or how much, well, it should really be within the framework of this context. So rather than the church coming out and saying, this is the law of what it should be, and rather than um, marriages or, or married couples coming out and say, well, this works for us. This works for our family. Well, it's not about what works for your family, right? It's about what works in line with the scripture. And that's the sad part. We've kind of gotten into that, that place in our society where the word of God doesn't carry the weight it used to. Um, the word of God doesn't carry the inerrant worth that it used to in the hearts of men and women. And so we don't measure what we're doing against scripture. Um, what we tend to do is say, well, does it explicitly say that I can't do this or that? And if it doesn't say that, then I'm free. Whereas the true, the true uh, believer has the mentality that says, how can I most honor the scripture here? Now, I'm not married, so I can't speak on that dynamic out of personal experience, but the word of God is really clear here that the man is supposed to look to Jesus and how he sacrificed and gave and model that. And the woman is supposed to look to the church and how the church is under the submission and loving, I can't say this enough, not compliance, but the loving obedience to the word of God. And model that within the framework of the husband uh, of you know her relationship with her husband. And so, if you have two couples that are doing that, you've got something beautiful because the man is not thinking about himself, and the woman is not thinking about herself. And so, you've got two people that are trying to give to each other. And oftentimes, the problem is, you know, we start tallying, and we can't do that. Um, we've got to stay away from that. So anyway, that's we could go on and on and on and on about that. But the framework for the family is really clear. When we're dealing with gender war, like I said, a lot of people want, well, can I do this or can I do that? That's not the right question. The right question is, what's going to honor God in this? What's going to honor the scripture in this? And it's not, well, does it work for us? Well, does it does it work? What, is it, what does scripture have to say about it? All right. And if the scripture doesn't give you any clarity, then that's where you you enter into the realm of, OK, I'm praying. If you're a woman and you're married, you're consulting your husband. You guys are praying. You meet with your pastor about it and you ask the Holy Spirit, maybe fast about it and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and tell you what you what you should do, which way you should go. Right. Versus what I've heard and seen in my own family and other families, people that just say, oh, oh, no, we're good. Well, I'm saying, well, you've got everything backwards. You're staying at home, you're working, and God tells you that you're supposed, you know, and they don't want to hear that. It's just like, whatever, well, it works. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, well, it's not about what works for you, though. That's very selfish. It's about what God wants to be modeled. And that's going to cost you. I mean, this is what the Christian life does. It costs us. Uh, it, it is a sacrifice. And this is why the word of God tells us. Um, Jesus said it. He said, count the cost. You know, it's not an easy thing, but you have to ask yourself, is this the life I really want to do? Is this what I really, this is what Jesus says. So that when you, so you don't look like a fool when you don't finish the course, when you don't finish the race, you know, he said, count, count the cost. Cause it's not easy, but it's worth it. And so we need to remember that, that this isn't necessarily easy, you know, but it's worth it to, to, to model Christ and to model uh, what God has what God has told us to do. All right, let's go on to the the leadership and the headship in the church. 
and we'll knock that out really quick. I'm actually not going to start in uh, Timothy. I'm going to start in Titus. Um, let me go ahead and say this. First and second Timothy and Titus are commonly known as the pastoral epistles because they're giving specific instructions on the structure of the church. Uh, we know from 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 3 or 4, where Paul is talking about how he institutes these doctrines in every church that he teaches at. So we know from his previous writings that this is, you know, he's not just teaching that, you know, <laughs> he's not just preaching the gospel and, you know, in certain areas, you know, the, the teachings it are for everywhere. And, uh, you know, the scholars will debate and, you know, there are plenty of people who don't even believe that Paul wrote everything and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's foolishness, really. But it needs to be said just so that we're aware. Um, but I take all of God's word. And so we need to understand that when it comes to this portion of Scripture, these three books, these three books take the cake on what is this. These are specifically for what church government is supposed to look like. Uh, Acts is a description of the history of the church. It's it's not prescribing what we are supposed to do. It's simply telling us what happened. And that's really important because you can go into the Old Testament anywhere and see the same thing. You see in the Old Testament all over. Just go read the book of Judges or anywhere and you can see, uh, you know, and, or Deuteronomy or what have you, uh, you know, any, anywhere in the Old Testament. You can read what happened. You realize, oh, it's not actually saying you need to do this. You know, now when you get to, you know, Leviticus, it, you have plenty of laws about what you need to do. But much of the text is just telling us what happened. So when we get to the, uh, you know, we get to the book of Acts, Acts is telling us what happened. It's a record of history. It's not designed for us to build churches around. A lot of people have done that about all kinds of things. Things, uh, an easy one to point out is speaking in tongues. We, everybody who speaks in tongues and who's a, a Bible believing Christian knows about 1 Corinthians 14. They just don't care because they are going to cite acts and say it doesn't matter. Well, if they have that mentality, they just have they just are choosing to reject the authority of scripture. You know, because acts is a history. It's not saying, okay, you know, just speak in tongues in the middle of service whenever you want without an interpreter. Right? All right, anyway, let me get to Titus. So, I'm going to start Titus chapter 2, verse number 3. It says the age women likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God not be blasphemed. All right. So that, that, that tells us, you know, we, we see the framework of teaching in the church, which is very much communal. It's not the industrialized church that we have today, the commercialized, you know, church with the, you know, smoking lights and the 5,000 members. And, you know, that's that's not what church looked like. It's very small, communal, you know, groups of, of people coming and meeting together. And we see the framework and the structure for for what the expectation is for women to teach in the church. It's for elder women to teach, first of all. It's for women who have been seasoned in the Lord, uh, seasoned in the word of God, who are teachers of good things in their lives, that they then teach the young women how to replicate the proper way of living and the proper godly lifestyle in home and in community. Let me read it again. Verse four, that they may teach the young women 
So it, it gives the context right there for teaching to young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. I haven't ever heard a, really a, a, a sermon about that, but I think it's important to be stated. Now let's go to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse number, let's look at verse number 11. It says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Uh, we know from other places like in Corinthians that this doesn't mean that the woman is supposed to be completely silent uh, during service. Verse number 12, but I suffer or I permit not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but that woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Now, there's something that's real sexist. I mean, it, it's not sexist, but if you, you know, we kind of will cringe when we hear that, even from how the culture is, has kind of influenced our thinking, at least I do. I mean, and I'm just being honest, there is a bit of fear that I have even reading some of these things, and it shouldn't be that way. And the church needs to take that back. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with exalting motherhood, which is what the scripture does. Um, but that is seen, you know, are you saying that women are just supposed to be in the kitchen and iron the clothes and sweep the floor and they're just maids and you're doormats and servants and you're a caveman and misogynist and 1950s and this isn't that time anymore. And I've heard all of that and more. But the word of God is eternal and its truths, its principles are eternally applicable. They don't change with the times. Uh, God does not change. His word, his word, his truth does not change. Uh, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, this is very interesting because this scripture is not talking about bishop. This scripture is not talking about pastoring. Uh, I, I always hear this scripture lumped in with pastoring, but this, there's nothing in this when you read it. Uh, from the beginning of the chapter to the end, this is First Timothy 2, there's nothing in this about uh, a woman being a pastor. I mean, it has nothing to do with that. This is simply just talking about teaching. And I hear many people say, well, you know, women are called to preach and women are called to ministry and they're, you know, they're, you know, all that's the same. They just can't be a pastor. You know, but the language here is very clear that, you know, there's teaching that is supposed to happen between, uh, you know, women, you know, uh, older women particularly and younger women. But this text cannot be clear. So either the text is wrong or we're interpreting it wrong. Um, and I would I would say the latter uh, because the scripture is extremely clear on here. It's it, it has nothing to do uh, in anything with, with with ministry. Now, if you flip over to the next chapter, that's when ministry starts. You know, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And it's very clear from the get go who he's talking about. If a man, a bishop, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. You know, it goes down the list, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, no greedy, filthy. And remember, what I said before is a lot of problems that we have within the context of the church is with men who act like pigs, men who are not submitted to God, men who say that they are called into ministry, but truly have not even been called into discipleship because they're not submitted to anybody. They run the, the church like it's their own kingdom, like it's their church and not Christ's church because they run their lives like it's their lives and not Christ's life. 
uh, that that is being lived through them. And so as a result, you've got a whole lot of tension, a lot of resentment, a lot of bitterness, and frankly, a lot of bad examples of, of good, godly, faithful men uh, that 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 can represent Christ well. They're out there, you know, just like Elijah said, oh, I'm the only one out here. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're the only one you see, but you're not the only one. Um, and so there, there are plenty of godly men out there, but but we we have just been the market the church has been flooded with 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 uh, false prophets false teachers immature novices people who are greedy people who sleep around people who are not faithful and it puts such a stain on the name of Christ and the church and so a lot of uh, women who get into positions of of clergy and ministry are being more faithful and being better stewards of the word of God, even though they're still not in the order that God has commanded. That is the problem that we're seeing. And people are are making concessions with scripture and saying, well, so what? At least we got somebody who ain't running around doing this and that. At least we got somebody who actually study and, and is faithful and such and such and such. At least we have somebody, whereas we got to deal with this joker Right. And so this this is one of the problems that the church is dealing with. And uh, I think the scripture is really clear, though, you know, that when we're looking at the concept of of gender war and gender roles, you know, we focus so much on should a woman work? Should a woman be in church? Should a woman this? And really it doesn't start that way. It really starts with a man is supposed to be submitted to Christ. And that's where it all starts. And that's how God operates. You know, with the first Adam and then the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we see it in his ministry and his followers. We see it in Paul's ministry and the apostles, other apostles ministry. And we can also see in our own culture, especially for those of us who've been churched and been in church the last 20 years. And I mean, been in church as in even traditional church. I mean, Baptist church, even Kojic church. You can see the change that's happened. You can you can sense you can just see it, uh, and men men are losing their place. Uh, whether that's through a lot of other things that we didn't talk about today, things like the effeminization of men, and just you know the homosexual uh, homosexual problem that the church has always had and just hasn't dealt with. Um, but I think this is an important conversation that needs to be had. I think it needs to be continued. Um, I would love for you guys to respond to this. I'd love to hear your comments, questions, your thoughts on this. But I definitely think it's something that uh, the church is struggling with. I mean, we really are struggling with this. And I don't think it's going to get any better until we have sit down and have an honest conversation about what God's word says. And when we know what his word says and we know that his intentions are, we need to make it our, our best effort to be obedient and to do what it says. So anyway, that's pretty much all I have uh, today, but I hope this helped somebody. I hope that you guys learned something. Um, I certainly did, and I enjoyed uh, being able to prepare for it. Uh, anyway, I love to hear from you guys, so feel free to reach out, and uh, God bless every single one of you, and I'll see you on the next episode.